Father, we do thank you for the rain. If we were experiencing drought, we'd be praying for it, and now we have it. And uh, we kid around sometimes and complain, but every good and perfect gift comes from you, and we thank you for it. We, we are dependent on you for everything in our lives. So we thank you for rain. We thank you for water that sustains us, that irrigates crops, that enables us to live life, and we always assume that those things will be there. And we attribute uh, these kinds of things to Mother Nature, but it comes from your good hand. We thank you, Lord, that you have created this universe, and we thank you that you spoke it into existence. And we thank you that you not only spoke it into existence and created it, but you sustain it. You keep it going. Uh, you uphold all things by the word of your power. Uh, with, without your power, things would spin off into anarchy and chaos. But you sustain us. It's what we call providence. That means you provide. And you provide everything that we need. Everything. We work hard, but we are very, very finite. And we are very, very limited. We can only do so much. And even that with which we work with, you have given to us. Father, sometimes we uh, take more credit than we should. We can fall into this self-made man thing. But we understand in our hearts and we understand from the word of God that all that we have comes from you. So we want to be thankful and we want to be careful not to take credit, but to have hearts of gratitude and to have hearts that acknowledge that you are the one that is giving us all of this that, that we enjoy and that we profit from in our lives. We're looking at these judges, Lord, and this, this period of history was a tough time. It was a difficult time. It was a time when things were falling apart. And we look at our culture and we see those same symptoms, and we are way far down the road just as they were. Yet you had men living in those times. You had men that you would raise up and that you would use. And we want to be those kinds of guys. We, we would ask you to use us. We would ask that you would make our lives significant in such a way that we would not waste our lives. There's so many guys that are running fast. They start early in the morning, they go till late at night. Their lives are full of activity. And quite frankly, it doesn't mean much because they are spending their, their lives really in matters of, of little importance. And one day they're going to die and someone's going to talk about them at a funeral service for 30 minutes and then it's over. Only what we do that is in line with your will and with your word lasts forever. None of us want to waste our lives. We want our lives to count. We want our lives to be significant. We want to sign up for something that's going to last so may you teach us tonight from the model of this guy, Jephthah. We ask your spirit to speak to our hearts. We ask you to give us what we need. We don't even know what we need, but you do. So we put ourselves into your good hands. We commit ourselves into your care. And we acknowledge that you are great 
and you are powerful and you're running the show. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Judges. Specifically, tonight we are in Judges 11, looking at a guy that is not really all that well known. But the thing I like about this guy, Jephthah, is that if I could write a theme over Judges 11 and the story of this guy's life, I would call it uh, overcoming a bad start. The Christian life is a race, and we see that metaphor used in the New Testament. About 10 years ago, I, I did a book called Finishing Strong, and the idea of that book was that basically the Christian life is a race and that the goal ought to be, as men of God, that we want to finish strong. There are three ways that you can finish in the Christian life. You can finish strong. We all want to do that. second way you can finish is to finish so-so. You just kind of, at some point in your life, put it on cruise control and you kind of coast into the finish line. Um, say, well, how does a guy do that? Well, I think one of the symptoms of that is that you begin to compromise in areas that you wouldn't have compromised in before. Uh, you get tired of the heat. You get tired of the, of, the, uh, of the flack. Now, there's a place for compromise, but we never compromise where the Scripture is clear. But we are uh, encouraged increasingly in our culture to do that just to go along, just to be the, the classic nice guy. Everybody likes a nice guy. But uh, there's more to life than being a nice guy. I, I think it was Gordon MacDonald who years ago, I read an article that he wrote, and he's, he said in, in every church there are four kinds of people. Um, he said there are your VIPs, and he wrote this from the perspective of the pastor. He said, you have your VIPs, your very important people. And as a pastor, your VIPs are your leaders. So obviously, as a pastor, uh, you need to spend time with your leaders because it's a team effort. That's why they're important. They're leading. Then you have your VTPs. Those are your very teachable people. Uh, the VTPs will be your next generation of leaders. You find teachable men, and uh, you instruct them, and they'll pick it up, and they're the, they're the next generation. So you're always looking for your VTPs. Who are the guys that are teachable? Who, who are the guys that have a heart for God? And who are the young guys that, that are looking? Or, or even the older guys that have recently come to the Lord that are teachable. Well, those are your VTPs. Uh, then you have your VNPs. Your VNPs are what he calls very nice people. And quite frankly, evangelical churches are full of very nice people. But from a leadership perspective, you could spend a whole lot of time with them. And uh, at the end of the year, they'd just still be real nice. Uh, because that's, that's what they are and that's what they do. They're just real nice. But um, then you get your VDPs. And your VDPs are your very draining people. And the very draining people, you could spend 100 hours a week with them and do that for three years, and at the end of the three years, they're going to turn on you and accuse you of not caring and not being interested in their lives. They are just flat-out draining people. And uh, every church has all four types. 
Now, when you're a leader, the worst thing you can do is to start out trying to please people. Uh, where you work, in, in your chosen field of endeavor, uh, if, you're, if you're a people pleaser, you're already in trouble. And, and hey, we all want to get along, and we all want to make a way, and nobody wants to make waves, but uh, pleasing people is a rough way to go. So as a leader, you've got to spend time with those who are strategic. Joe Aldrich used to say that uh, all of God's people are equally precious, but not all of God's people are equally strategic. So you've got to figure out who's strategic. I mean, we, we look out for everybody, but those that are strategic, those are the ones that you've got to give attention to. Now, here's what happens in the Christian life. Some who are going to be very, very strategic don't look that way. So you've got to have your radar up. Because, quite frankly, they don't have a real good start. Now, think about a guy like Solomon. We spend a lot of time looking at Solomon's life. If anyone ever had a great start, it was Solomon. Solomon came out of the blocks like a rocket. He had everything going for him. His father was David. David had spent a lot of time mentoring him after failing with his other three sons. David really got focused on Solomon. And David gave him a mission, and, and David helped him find his purpose. David had asked God that, he could build the temple, and God said, no, there's too much blood on your hands, but I'm going to use your son to do it. And, and David honed in. Uh, Solomon was given everything that he needed. David started accumulating all the lumber and the subcontractors to get that temple built, even before Solomon started on it. I mean, he, he had a lot of advantages. He had a great head start because of who his dad was. Uh, not everybody has a beginning like that. Oh, well, Solomon, God appeared to him twice. That's a pretty good head start. God actually appeared to him and spoke to him. He was in the presence of God. That's a great start. But uh, Solomon, with his phenomenal resume, and we're big on resumes, aren't we? Resumes are so important in this culture that guys lie about their resumes. Is it not amazing how many guys have gotten caught for lying on their resume? Why? Because they're trying to appear to be something that they're not. It's a tough way to go. Now, if you're putting together a resume, um, what do you want to put on it? What would be a good college to put on your resume that you graduated from that would indicate you had a great start? Give me, give me some colleges that would really be good. What? MIT. MIT. Moody Bible. Well, it depends on what circles you're running in, I guess, huh? <laughs> but if you're running in the right circles, that'd be a good one. Yeah. MIT, which stands for Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I didn't go to MIT. I went to MIC, K-E-Y. Um, but boy, that'd be great to have on your resume, wouldn't it? MIT or Harvard or Yale. See, man, you got that on your resume. That's, that's a great start. You, you got a good old boy network going there. And uh, that's, that's pretty good stuff, you see. Some guys just have a great start. Can I show you uh, Paul's great start over in Philippians? The reason I'm talking here about great starts is this guy Jephthah, as you'll see in a minute, he didn't have a great start. But he was still used. Solomon had a great start, and Solomon blew it. If you look in Philippians chapter 3, to pick up in midstream, verse 4, Paul is talking about his resume and the fact that he's not going to put any confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh... 
If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Now here's his resume. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. They were the tribe that never defected. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, top of the line, Yale, Harvard, Stanford. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. I mean, this guy was a stud. He, he, he had everything on a resume that a Jewish leader wanted to have. But that great resume, he says in verse 7, that great resume he put together, and he didn't make this stuff up. It was true. It was real. He says, um, but whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, that, I, 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 I got to tell you, the best teaching I ever heard on this was from Ray Steadman at a pastor's conference. And you got a bunch of pastors, and, and you know, Ray's with the Lord now. But Ray went to Dallas Seminary with, with Howard Hendricks, and they went through together. And uh, Chuck actually went up and interned under Ray Steadman when, when he was at Dallas Seminary. And, and Ray's mentored a lot of guys. Uh, he found Luis Palau down in Argentina. Luis was a youth pastor, and he brought him up here and mentored him. Ray's just a great guy, great Bible teacher. Uh, just just the, the real thing. Uh, Ray is doing this pastor's conference at the Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto. And, you know, I'm a rookie pastor, and I'm sitting there, and you got all these pastors from all over the country. And Ray's teaching this passage. And Ray's just, he's, you know, he's real mild-mannered, he's real low-key, and he's just going through, and he's talking about, you know, here are, here are the credentials that Paul had. And he's, he's just, Ray never raised his voice, he never got real excited. But he's just saying, these are all the things that uh, people of the world, they look to, and no one had a better resume, no one had a better pedigree, no one had... Um, a, a, a better uh, paper of credentials than Paul. All this stuff that I gloried in, and that, that, man, if anyone had a great start, it was me. And you know what? All that stuff, it's worthless. It's really worthless. Um, man, Solomon had all that, and to him it was worthless. Jephthah didn't have a great start. Jephthah had a lousy start. Jephthah started with two strikes against him, but God used him. A lot of times we look around at people who have more advantage than we have, that have uh, more credentials, that have a better pedigree, and sometimes we get intimidated and we think to ourselves, you know what? God could never use me. Nothing could be further from the truth. I read this article by Dennis Fisher. He said, on one of Christopher Columbus's voyages to the New World, he came in contact with a remarkable tree. It had round fruit that bounced like a ball. The natives called it the weeping wood. The tree emitted a sap that looked as though the tree were crying. The sap was eventually harvested and hardened into an eraser that could rub out pencil lead on paper. Because of this, they called it rub Rubber had other uses but became too brittle in winter. In the 1830s, an inventor named Charles Goodyear found that by removing sulfur from rubber, it could withstand very cold temperatures and so could be used in the making of rubber tires. This led the way to a huge demand for rubber when the automobile was invented. Later, it was discovered that sap from the rubber tree could be used to make surgical gloves. Today, its beautiful blonde wood is growing in popularity in the furniture industry. 
Who would guess that one tree could be used to make bouncing balls, rubber tires, latex gloves, and fine furniture? The tree has multiple uses that needed only to be discovered. What was interesting is that when Columbus came across this, the natives basically felt it was worthless. There was just, it just was a tree that emitted sap. What do you do with a tree that emits sap? Not much, or so they thought. Jephthah is kind of the rubber tree of the book of Judges. Now Jephthah, I'm in verse, uh, chapter 11. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. Right there, the guy's in trouble. That's a bad start. Uh, his, his mother was a prostitute. That's really not how you want to start out in life. Um, you're going to carry a lot of baggage. You're, um, you're probably not going to grow up in a great environment. Scripture says that bad company corrupts good morals. Uh, prostitutes tend to hang out in bad company. And, and good morals are immediately under assault. That's how this guy started. Uh, now, who was his dad? Well, it says, and Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Now, Gilead was a man of uh, high reputation in Israel. He, he was a man who was uh, admired. He was a man who was a leader. He, he was a man that had a great reputation. But he was a guy who lived a double life. And because of his double life, he created all kinds of difficulties and he created all kinds of problems. Uh, we've talked about integrity and the fact that integrity, another word for integrity, is congruency. Uh, when you've got integrity, it means that all the pieces add up. It means that all the pieces line up. But when the pieces don't add up and when the pieces don't line up, you've got a lack of integrity. Um, it, it, it's, it's talked about the fact that there is a public persona and there is a private persona. There, there should not be a difference between the public man and the private man. Uh, when you get around a guy who's a real leader, he's not any different in a small group. He's not any different in his home than he is with a lot of people. He, he, he's not trying to impress anybody. He's just simply himself and what he proposes to believe in public is what he is living out in private. That's integrity. You want to know, ultimately, if a guy has integrity? Then you talk to his wife. You want to know if a guy has integrity? You talk to his kids. And, and you find out what they think. Do they see a big gulf? Do they see a big gap between what this guy says and how this guy lives? It doesn't add up, and there are going to be some issues. Um, maybe you're thinking, you know, Steve, that's how I lived my life for a long time. Well, if that's true, then you have some deep regrets, just as Paul had some deep regrets. What the enemy loves to do, and, and guys, we all have things we'd like to go back and undo. What the enemy loves to do is bring up our mistakes and our sins of the past and he loves to paralyze us in the present by bringing up how we screwed up in the past. But what did Paul say? Paul said, forgetting what lies behind. I press on. I press forward. Uh, the, the point is, that may be how you used to live, but now, what do you do? You start following Christ. Paul said, 
You follow me as I follow Christ. And as we follow the Lord, that gulf, that, that fissure between our public persona and our private persona shrinks. We start living out in private what we espouse in public. And that's how you regain trust, and that's how you gain integrity. And it can, it can be gained. Uh, it, it can happen. But we live in a, we live in a day and a time of, uh, of synthetic leadership. We've got authentic leadership. We've got synthetic leadership. And what's important in our day is giving the appearance of being a leader and giving the appearance of integrity. There's a trial going on right now. I think this guy's name is Dennis Kalowski. He, Kozlowski. He ran Tyco and ran it into the ground and spent unbelievable amounts of money, two, three, I mean, I'm, you know, two, three million dollars on a birthday party kind of thing. And I was reading about his trial this week, and uh, <clears throat> the attorney was asking him about a 1099 uh, that he didn't report on his income tax, a 1099 for $25 million. And uh, gosh, doggone it, he just forgot. It, you know, he just had a lot going on. Now, I, can, I mean, hey, if I had a 1099 for $25 million, I'm, I'm sure I'd forget it too. Uh, wouldn't give it a second thought. No, no, that is absolutely ludicrous. You would give it a second thought. I wonder what kind of reputation this guy Gilead had at home. He was, he was a man of uh, public persona. He was a man who had a certain reputation. Reputation is what people think you are. Character is what you are when no one else is around. I was in Ohio a few weeks ago, did a conference. Had trouble getting up there. I was pretty tired Friday night, did two sessions. I mean, I was exhausted. And all I wanted to do was go back to the room and watch about an hour of pornography and then go to sleep. <laughs> you know? Just kind of wind down there. Now, you're assuming that I didn't do that. But you don't know for sure. See, reputation is what people think you are. Character is what you are when no one else is around. See, that's character. That's what God's looking for. It's what we are in the dark. It's what we are when we're on the road. You see. And, and hey, we've all heard of these big-time preachers, and you would think they would never do something like that, and they were doing it. You see. Now, I didn't watch pornography because the Lord was watching me. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. You see. It's not so much what you do up in front. It's what you do when no one's there. That's the issue. Gilead, Jephthah's father, had some character issues, big time. So here's Jephthah, and, and his dad's this big time stud in Israel, and his mother's a prostitute. Now that's really interesting, because Gilead was married. If you'll notice, verse 2, Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. See, this guy didn't have a real great start. We'd call this uh, illegitimacy. His mother's a prostitute, his dad's a big-time guy, but they got to run him out of town because he makes the family look bad. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. 
Uh, we don't know much about this guy in his early life, except he's a young guy. He's driven out of town. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of direction. He, he doesn't have uh, a, a real good base. So he gets some worthless guys around him. And what does, again, the scripture say? Bad company corrupts good morals. So he's running with the, with the wrong crowd. That's all we know about this guy's early life. But uh, interestingly enough, some things begin to happen with this guy. And we don't have all of the information. But what happens is, is that he begins the process of going from immaturity to maturity. And, and the reason we know that is because of verse 4. And you recall, before I get into verse 4, you recall the book of Judges, and this is a, a snapshot of a 300-year history between the time of Joshua's death and what begins in 1 Samuel, where the first king is going to be anointed by Samuel, which is Saul, and then he screws up, and then it's David. So this is that 300-year snapshot of the history of uh, the nation of Israel, the time of Judges. And Judges 2, if you've been with us for our study, Judges 2 chronicles a downward spiral. They keep leaving the Lord. Uh, they're influenced by other nations. Instead of following the Lord, they start following the false gods. And as they follow false gods, they're collapsing internally. They're losing their moral compass they're, they're losing their significance. They are lowering the standard, and the nation is in trouble, and every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. So this 300-year period, they'll get themselves in trouble, and then these other nations come in and oppress them, the nations that they should have conquered. But because they didn't follow the Lord, now those nations are running ragged over them and just intimidating the, the, the dickens out of these guys. They call out to the Lord. The Lord will raise up a deliverer or a judge. And they will defeat their enemies. And as long as this judge is alive, generally speaking, they have peace. They have peace for about 40 years. And then that judge will die, and then the downward spiral goes again because their hearts aren't in it. They're living off their leadership. So it's a bad time. It's a time of internal collapse. Uh, don't you love it when they show on, on the news when they're bringing down an old building? I mean, those are just great shots. And that building's there, and all of a sudden, that sucker folds like a chumpin' pancake. And you, boom. That's what happened to Israel. Uh, only when we see it on TV, it happens in about, what, seven or eight seconds. See, it takes hundreds of years for that to happen. That's what's happening in this country. And we're, and we're watching it. It's accelerating, and we're all concerned about it. That's why this book is so relevant to where we are. Now, with that background in mind, look at verse 4. It came about after a while that the sons of Ammon, we've run into these guys before, they're always driving Israel nuts, that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead, catch this, went to get Jephthah. From the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. This is really interesting. They drove the guy out. They wanted nothing to do with this guy. And now they're going after this guy. Why are they going after him? Well, look at verse 1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior. In other words, and we don't have the information, 
But something happened in this guy's life. This guy began to move into maturity. This guy began to develop in his leadership. This stuff came out of this guy's life that nobody could imagine, just like a rubber tree. Those natives had those rubber trees all around them. They thought those, those trees were useless. People looked at Jephthah. This guy is useless. Had no idea what was, what was inside this guy. Do you have a $10 bill? Who's on the $10 bill? Alexander Hamilton. Here's a uh, biography that uh, Ron Chernow has written on Hamilton's life. And I'll just read from the cover flap. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was arguably the most important figure in American history who never attained the presidency. But he had a far more lasting impact than many who did. Now catch this. An illegitimate, largely self-taught orphan from the Caribbean. Hamilton rose with stunning speed to become George Washington's chief aide a battlefield hero, a member of the Constitutional Convention, the leading author of the Federalist Papers, and head of the Federalist Party. As the first Treasury Secretary, he forged America's tax and budget systems, customs service, Coast Guard, and Central Bank. With masterful storytelling skills, Chernow, the author, offers the whole sweep of Hamilton's turbulent life, his exotic, brutal upbringing. His brilliant military, legal, and financial exploits, his titanic feuds with Jefferson, Madison, Adams, and Monroe. His shocking illicit romances, his enlightened abolitionism, and his famous death in a duel with Aaron Burr in July of 1804. Who in the world would have ever imagined, looking at the background, looking at this kid running around the West Indies, uh, who lived in absolute abject poverty? In, in, in the Caribbean during this time, you had the white people who lived like kings, and you had the black folks that, that lived a horrendous existence. And in this book, documents that slavery was so bad in the West Indies that the average slave could expect, after they were enslaved, to only live five years. That was it. Uh, Hamilton lived in such abject poverty and his father was such a scoundrel that he actually lived in the poorest section of the West Indies. You look at this white kid living among slaves, and you're thinking, this guy's going nowhere. And he went somewhere. Uh, Hamilton overcame a bad start. So did Jephthah. Isn't this ironic? They throw the guy, they run the guy out of town on a rail, and now they're in such trouble. You know what they're looking for? They're looking for a leader. And God had been doing something in this guy's life, and his leadership skills became known to the point they're going after him. Hey, we need, would you come back and help us? This is amazing to me. Look at verse 7. Look at Jephthah's response. Then Jephthah, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. 
I mean, these guys were in trouble. These guys were looking for a leader, and there was something within Jephthah that attracted them. Uh, he, he, man, I wish we had more information. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be great to know? What was it that, that, that God did in this guy's life? We're not told. But, but you know what? You know, if you're an apple tree, you're going to bear apples. If you're a leader, you're going to show leadership. And these gifts that were dormant and these gifts that were hidden started to come out in Jephthah's life. Verse 9, so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? Now, some have read that and said, oh, this guy was on an ego trip. I, I don't think so. I think there was such chaos going on in Israel at this time I think what he's doing, because he is a leader, he's trying to clarify the situation. He's trying to get it down, and we'd say today, he's trying to get it down in black and white. Wait a minute, let me understand this. If, if I come and fight, and the Lord gives them up to me, and I'm going to come back to that, because that shows you this guy's heart. See, he knew, he knew that victory came from the Lord. This guy had some things right with the Lord. In his obscurity and his being driven off and his humiliation because of his background, God had done a work in this guy's life. And he knew that he wasn't going to do this in his own strength. He knew that he wasn't going to do it because of his own giftedness. He knew that ultimately the Lord was going to give victory. If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? He's just asking, am I going to be the leader? Or, or is there another deal here? Are we gonna? Because they'd already rejected him once. He's just demonstrating leadership here. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. This is pretty wild stuff. See, th this shows you how desperate people can become for, um, for authentic authentic leadership man we've talked about this in here a hundred times we live in a culture of synthetic leadership guys want to look like leaders guys want to be perceived as leaders guys hire public relation firms to uh to spin things to make them look like leaders but um but they're not because they don't have a heart for leadership. Um, I've mentioned this book a number of times in here. Uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. This is not a Christian book, but I would submit to you it is a Christian book. It's a book about business, and this book continues, continues to stay at the top of the charts. Why, why is that? Because of the content of this book. Uh, Collins is basically, in this book, talking about companies that have existed for a long time, had some success, and then kind of fell back into the middle of the pack. They were good, but they had lost their shine, and they had lost their glory, and they were all longing for the good old days. But they made a leap, and they made a leap from good to great. And he analyzes these companies, and he's, this guy's got research coming out the wazoo. It's just he's got this leadership team. 
I mean, they've, they've analyzed this thing from every possible way. He has this pretty simple continuum. He breaks down all this stuff into a grid of about five different points. And the, the, really, the first point that he has is what he calls uh, level five leadership. And when you read the chapter on level five leadership, he's got five different levels of leadership. You know what level five leadership is? It's what the Bible calls servant leadership. Jesus said if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. And when he looked at these different companies that had made the leap from good, from average, from mediocre to great, the very first thing out of the blocks he identifies is that they had a level five leader. What's a level five leader? It's a servant leader, a guy who doesn't care who gets the credit, a guy who doesn't care if he's in the limelight, a guy who's not living in order to get his name in the paper, a, a, a guy who basically is concerned about the people around him and how they are treated and using their gifts and uh, focusing on an objective that they all agree upon and moving in the same direction. And, and people love this guy. And he encourages them, and he builds them up, and he's just kind of flies under the radar. Doesn't have to be in the spotlight. When you read this chapter on level five leadership, he's basically saying these companies we studied had leaders that led as Jesus said to lead. These guys were servants. That's, that's amazing to me. So you got all these guys in the business world reading through this stuff and you know, level five, what's that? Level, it's, it, see, it's everything that they don't get in the culture. That's what it is. It, it, it's a principle straight out of the word of God. Now, all these guys that he studied, some of them I'm sure, I'm sure were believers, a lot of them weren't. But you know, it's possible to get a hold of a biblical principle and live it and not even know Christ. But if you're an unbeliever and you practice the biblical principle, blessing is going to accrue into your life because it's the word of God. And it works. That's not why we believe it. Truth works. But that's not what is the most important thing about truth. Truth is truth. But if it's true, it works. And, and these guys, wherever they came up with this concept, they're living it out in their life. He gives an example. You've all heard of Hewlett-Packard. Collins says, shortly before his death, I had the opportunity to meet David Packard. Despite being one of Silicon Valley's first self-made billionaires, he lived in the same small house that he and his wife built for themselves in 1957, overlooking a simple orchard. The tiny kitchen with its dated linoleum and the simply furnished living room bespoke a man who needed no material symbols to proclaim, I'm a billionaire, I'm important, I'm successful. His idea of a good time, said Bill Terry, who worked with Packard for 36 years, was to, get, was to get some of his friends together to string some barbed wire. Packard bequeathed his $5.6 billion estate to a charitable foundation, and upon his death, his family created a eulogy pamphlet with a photo of him sitting on a tractor in farming clothes. The caption made no reference to his stature as one of the great industrialists of the 20th century. It simply read, David Packard, 1912 to 1996, rancher. That's it. Isn't that great? You know, guys, when all else fails, read the directions. 
We all love to be served. That's human nature. But Jesus said, if you're going to be great, now, isn't it interesting? Jesus said, if you're going to be great. And what did he call this book? From good to what? Great. And the very first piece that he identifies is servant leadership. See, servant leadership makes a difference in a company. Servant leadership makes a difference in a family. You know what servant leadership means in a family and in a marriage? It means you don't always have to be right, even when you are. It's, it's tough to not be right when you are right. <laughs> you kind of get my drift here, don't you? But, but sometimes the most important thing is not to be right, even though you are right. Sometimes the most important thing is to do what's right instead of being right. Sometimes the, the most important thing in a marriage is, is to back off. Sometimes the most, you get my drift to what I'm saying. See, good families just don't happen. Good families are the result. And, and you know what? It takes two people. It takes two people. When you've got a husband and wife that are trying to outserve one another instead of compete with one another, when you've got one who's serving and you've got another one who's taking and who's taking advantage, it's not going to work. And there's nothing you can do about your partner. All we can do is take care of ourselves. But servant's leadership is huge. I just find it interesting that uh, this guy starts off with a biblical premise, and I don't even think he knows it. Um, the, the next one that he's got in here is... Let me see if I can find this little continuum. I lost my, here we, here we go. The next one is, he says, um, the next principle is first who, then what. Now, most businesses, as he points out, they don't work this way. They're asking what, then who. They're asking, what are we going to do? He says, these guys didn't ask that. They asked who, then what. In other words, uh, the way he explains it in the book is, when you get a servant leader, the first thing a servant leader has to do is um, get the right people on the bus, as he puts it. And when you get the right people on the bus, the flip side of that is you get the wrong people off the bus. Because, you see, what a servant leader does, the first thing a servant leader does, if he's going to make something work, he's got to get other servant leaders. Those are the right people. We all got to be rowing in the same direction. So if you're a servant leader, you're going to look for other servant leaders that you can get on the bus with you. Now, if someone's not a servant leader, you get them off the bus. So who you're working with is critical. And this is why I'm saying, in a marriage, you got to have two people going in the same direction. If you don't, it's going to be really hard, and it's going to be really, really difficult, and there's going to be all kinds of conflict, and there's going to be all kinds of disappointment. So you get the right people on the bus, now, see, this is what was happening in the nation of Israel. They knew they were in deep trouble, and they were in such a crisis, and they were in such catharsis that they're thinking to themselves, we better get the right guy on the bus here. So who do they go look for? They go look for Jephthah. Now, I believe that Jephthah was a servant leader. You say, well, how do you know that? Because of how he, oh, and this is the next one. On this continuum, 
What he's got in here, you know what number three is? He calls it confront the brutal facts. I really like that. That's what good leaders do. Good leaders don't live in denial. Uh, good leaders, uh, you've heard of a dysfunctional family, right? A dysfunctional family doesn't deal with reality. It's, it's, it's too painful. So dysfunctional family, the classic is, you know, an alcoholic family. And, and uh, you know, dad's drunk uh, in the living room, passed out. And everybody acts like everything's normal. Well, you, you can't act like everything's normal. But you're trying to cope, and it's too painful to, to work that out, so everyone just keeps living in denial. That doesn't work. Uh, you've got to confront the brutal facts. So here you got three principles. Level five leadership. First who, then what? Get the right people on the bus. Uh, confront the brutal facts. You, you know what? I think that's what Scripture teaches. When, when you've got an issue... When you've got a relational issue, what do you do? You speak the truth in love. You don't ignore it. You don't deny it. You confront it. You face it. Uh, Galatians 6.1, brethren, if any of you are caught in any trespass, let those who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. You don't ignore it. You deal with it. What do you have in Matthew 18? You got a brother in sin? What do you do? You go to him. You confront the brutal facts. The first three principles in this book are right out of the word of God. Let me show you how Jephthah did this. So they make Jephthah a leader, okay? I think this guy's a servant leader. Now, they're in trouble. They're being plagued by these raids from the uh, Ammonites. You guys still with me? <laughs> All right. Look at verse 12. Now Jephthah sent soldiers to attack the kings of the sons of Ammon. That's not what it says. It says, Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? Here's some maturity. Instead of just going off half-cocked and saying, Let's go attack these guys, what he does is, they got a problem. He confronts the brutal facts. And he approaches this guy. And he's dialoguing with this guy. And, and he's, he's not a hothead. He's not flying off the handle. But he wants one leader to another to talk about the issues that are before them. So he faces this guy. What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? The kings of the son of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, here's the response, because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, they go back into their history. When they came up from Egypt, now, why did they come up from Egypt? Because Moses was going to lead them into what kind of land? The promised land. The land promised to Israel, not the Ammonites, you see. Now, I want you to notice, and is it not amazing, this is still what's being fought over today. It's the same cotton-picking issue that's going on, is the land. The Palestinians say, this is my land. No, it isn't. 
God gave this to Israel. Same, same issue. Uh, verse 13, because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt. Therefore, return them peaceably now. Now watch Jephthah's response in 14. Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon. And they said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. He's going through their history. That's what this guy's doing. Saying, please let us pass through your land, but the king of Edom would not listen. This stuff is all outlined in the book of Numbers, by the way. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab. What he's doing is he's going through the history of the conflict and he is presenting his case. I, I find this very interesting. And I'll tell you why I find it interesting. I, I think God did a great work in this guy's life because you see this guy exercising rational leadership here. He's confronting a problem. But here's what I find really interesting. A guy that had this kind of start, his mother's a prostitute, his father was a man of uh, reputation, but a man of little character. He's driven out of town. See, for most people, for most guys that had that kind of background, that kind of background would determine their identity. This is who I am. I'm an illegitimate son. Jephthah, Jephthah did not view himself that way. Jephthah pulled back and said, listen, that may be who my father was and who my mother was, but you got to understand something. I'm part of a covenant nation. I am a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I am part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, and God promised to give Abraham land. This guy knew who he was. And who he was wasn't determined by his birth or his immediate background. He was able to zoom out and get the larger, bigger picture, and that determined his identity. So how do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as a loser who came from a loser background? And your dad was a loser, and his dad was a loser, and his dad was a loser? That's not, that's not how you should view yourself. Not if you know Christ. Because you're a son. You've been adopted. Uh, you are beloved. See, that's, that's what you got to pull back, and that's what you got to see, and that's how you got to view yourself. Uh, the Scripture says that we're not to think higher of ourselves than, our than we should. Many of us, we're thinking lower of ourselves than we should. We don't understand who we are and what the Lord has done for us, that he loved you, and that he selected you, and that he chose you, and that he called you, and that he brought you to himself. You did not choose him. He chose you. Isn't that what the Word of God says? What did Jesus say to the disciples? You did not choose me. All the Arminians would say, yes, we did. We exercised our free will. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go forth and bear fruit. Yeah, you chose him. Why did you, chose him? Why did you choose him? Why did you love him? Because he first what? He first loved us. That's why you love him. He loved you first. And he drew you. That's who you are. 
That's your heritage. That's your background. See, this guy knew his history. This guy knew where he really came from. I'm not just talking about his father and his mother. This guy had a sense of his lineage. He had a sense of the working of God in history. I'm not going to read all this. Note, uh, note, note verse 23 as he's talking to these guys. Uh, he says, since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? In other words, is this your land because it, you were driven out of the land? Catch this in verse 24. Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? Man, you talk about a, a knife in the ribs and a twist. This guy, I like, this guy's a stud. He's standing for God. You've got what Chemosh, hey, isn't he your God? Don't you have what he gave you to possess? Well, guess what? He finishes in 24. So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess it. This guy had a sense of the greatness of God and the movement of God in history. He understood the covenant. He understood the history. And God took this guy out of the worst of circumstances and the worst of backgrounds and God turned this guy into a leader that stood on the word of God. I find that encouraging. And you should find it encouraging. If you've got a great resume and a great family history, good for you. But keep it in perspective. And don't live off of it. Uh, if, if you've got a poor background and a poor family history, you know what? You put a new link in the family chain. You turn that around. You follow the Lord completely and fully, and, and you know what? Things will change. and you, you, You'll switch, perhaps, what's been going on for generations in your family. The thing I love about the Scripture is that it's so practical and it's so real. Um, because you get over to verse, or rather, you get over to verse 29, and, uh, and you see a flaw in this guy. He did a lot of things right. You know, I'm grateful that the Word of God is practical because it, you know, it shows us these guys the way they really were. And the reason that's encouraging to me is because uh, sometimes I get it right and sometimes I get it wrong. And I'm glad to know I'm not the first guy coming down the pike to experience that. And you're not either. Sometimes when we get it wrong, we just absolutely... Uh, deprecate ourselves and we think we're of no value and we think we're of no worth and how could God ever use me dot, dot, dot. Uh, I want you to see something that happened to Jephthah verse 29 it says now the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon so he, he's going to go take these guys on now Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said if you will give the sons of Ammon into my hand, so he, he's going to take these guys on, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And he goes on in 32 and 33, and he defeats these guys by the power of God. Now 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now, she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. 
When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low, and you were among those who troubled me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. Now, a lot of people read this, and a lot of people think that what he did was he made a vow to the Lord that whoever came out, he would sacrifice to the Lord. And a lot of people in reading this kind of... uh, in shock and horror, have assumed that Jephthah then sacrificed his daughter to the Lord. Now, I want to read something from Ron Allen here, uh, Old Testament prof down at Dallas Seminary, uh, that is very, very clear. Because sometimes we read things, especially in the Old Testament, and it just kind of baffles us. Well, you know, what a terrible thing that this guy would sacrifice his daughter. Listen to what Allen says. The text does not explicitly say that he killed his daughter, only that he carried out his vow. When the verse goes on to say that she knew no man... And if you, look, if you look there, when it describes her, um, uh, I'm sorry, in 37, yeah, she said to her father, let this thing be done for me, let me alone for two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. She was a virgin, she was not married. Now catch what Alan says here. When the verse goes on to say that she knew no man, some take this to mean that she was sacrificed by being dedicated to a life of perpetual virginity. Several arguments can be made for this interpretation. First, human sacrifice was contrary to the law of Moses. Leviticus 18.21, Deuteronomy 12.31, Deuteronomy 18.10. God was not in the business of child sacrifice. The surrounding nations were. Until the wicked reigns of Ahaz and Manasseh, centuries later, there was no record of human sacrifice in Israel, even by those who followed Baal. Second, the great respect that Jephthah had for God surely would have prevented him from making such a perverse offering. Third, the fact that Jephthah permitted his daughter to bewail her virginity, in verses 37 and 38, for two months, fits an explanation of perpetual virginity better than human sacrifice. Fourth, The indication that his daughter knew no man also seems to be a detail that would support the idea of celibacy, that the vow was she would not be married and she would be a virgin for the rest of her life. Fifth, the Bible provides evidence that such devoted service for women did exist at the central sanctuary, Exodus 38.8, 1 Samuel 2.22. In ancient Israelite society, the father had the power to prohibit a daughter to marry. Sixth, The conjunction, this is critical, catch this now. Six, the conjunction in Jephthah's pivotal statement in verse 31, that whatever or whoever came out of the door shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it, could be translated or, O-R. Thus, if a person came out first, he would dedicate that person to the Lord. Or, if an animal came out first, he would offer the animal as a burnt sacrifice. Jephthah did not sacrifice his daughter. But he made a vow that he probably shouldn't have made. He said something in impulse he probably shouldn't have said. I'm glad I've never done that. Aren't you? Flip over to James 1, just real quickly. It's a great, great verse for leaders. Leaders tend to charge ahead. Leaders tend to make quick decisions. Leaders are not passive. 
been reading Zell Miller's book. It's a great book. His father died when he was 17 months old. Uh, he was raised by his mother, a widow. Uh, they lived in a stone cottage without heat. Um, no indoor plumbing for a while. And uh, he has a section on Congress that he writes about. And he has a section on taxes, on mon uh, fiscal responsibility. And Zell Miller says, my mother made more difficult decisions in an evening than most congressmen make in their entire tenure. His mother was a leader. She knew how to make decisions instead of being passive. Here's a good verse for leaders in uh, James chapter 1. Notice, if you would, and it's right in front of my face. There it is, verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow. To anger. If we just wrote that verse down and put it on the dashboard of our car this week, we'd be better leaders. Let us be quick to what? Hear. We tend to be quick to speak. Jephthah was quick to speak, got him in trouble. Good leaders are quick to hear, slow to speak slow to anger. Uh, Jephthah was slow to anger with the king of Ammon. But when he was comfortable in his own house, he was quick to speak and it got him in trouble. Guy was just human, had the best of intentions. That's how we are. God takes uh, frail men and uh, flawed men and he uses them because he has no one else to choose from. Are you flawed? Then you're in good company. And God would love to use you if you'll just submit your life to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this guy, Jephthah. Came out of nowhere, had two strikes against him when he came out of the womb. But he learned, and he must have been teachable. Didn't have that great resume. Some of us don't either. But you still want to use us. And you still want to teach us. And our lives can be significant. We're grateful for that hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.